Basically, we're dealing with the emotions of a child here. Good night, Peanut. Want me to take a look at it? I do it for a lot of the fellows. What do you want me to say? No, you have to tell us. You have your fingers in your ears? It's a Chippendale. He can get an unnatural sense of entitlement. You put chips on the side and dip it in the middle. Now, if the adults can weigh in... He is nine years old. You okay? Yeah, fine. Good. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week we take a look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015. We gear our conversations around the conversations that the show's having about gender, the patriarchy, and other things that make us mad. Mikey, this is the first time you've heard that that intro I put together. What do you think? What's your uh, grade rating for that one? When the fuck were you going to tell me that this show wasn't coming out weekly? This aired before? <laughs> That's right. I, I get it. It's like, it's probably not sweaty enough, huh? Yeah, I, wow. Okay, well, cool. I think that was really great context for me to know before coming on this podcast, but... Whew. Well, welcome back. We've missed you the last couple episodes. It's been a minute. Um, you've been traveling a lot, and it's good to have you back watching the show again. And uh, you're Mike Overholz. People who don't know, they should. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. I was at a buddy's wedding, and it just didn't go so great, so I didn't want to you know, hang out with them for a couple weeks afterwards. Gosh, I guess that doesn't spell good news for that person's marriage, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, okay, well, then we also have over here, You know, the, the, this episode is called Red in the Face, and he's wearing a red shirt to mark the occasion. And it's sure. Washington. Hey, buddy. Hey, what's up? Yeah, you know, uh, you're you're kind of had an exhausting weekend yourself. Nothing but oysters and martinis this past weekend, huh? Uh, not so many oysters, but yeah, I had a few drinks. Do you like oysters? Uh, not really. I don't know. I haven't had that many. Are you an an oyster fan? I'm obsessed. I mean, wait, really? Mike, do you like oysters at all? Yeah, it's like eating a mermaid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, like, do you actually? Because, like, are we gonna? I want to bond with you. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, I live in Seattle, so you'd be hard pressed to find yeah, like yeah. a kind of seafood I don't like. You could get sick of oysters though, living in Seattle. I would imagine. So. I think the only way you get sick of it is by uh, pairing it with uh, martinis and then climbing stairs. I don't know. <laughs> and cheese That's what I heard. And, yeah. <laughs> oh boy, will... this episode of Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. I was gonna say, yeah. I mean, not to jump ahead, but I in my head canon before we had actually met. I would mm-hmm. like to think that that scene with Roger and Don eating and drinking and popping, uh, you know, ulcers and all that. That would be popping what, like ulcers. our first uh, like pimples. <laughs> that would be like our first official, uh, you know, breaking bread moment between the two of us. It didn't go quite as dramatically as that one, but yeah, we my weren't head wearing can. suits. Yeah, uh, I mean, we eventually were wearing suits, but you sure. know, close enough. Yeah, eventually, um, you know, it's kind of similar, like, because if I'm the Roger in this scenario, I'm a few years older than you, you know, I'm a little bit like, you know, kind of kind of like lording my entitlement over you all the time. <laughs> guess so. Yeah, I said it. I, so this episode of Mad Men, uh, this is the seventh episode. We're past the halfway point of season one. How does it feel, you guys? I mean, I know, Mike, you kind of skipped ahead a little bit because you got sick. So you binged the whole thing. But uh pretending that you didn't do that <laughs> um how are you feeling about this half of the season so far man i think it just ramps up in such a good way i think especially this episode um it feels like really fast paced you're getting a lot of beats with a lot of mm-hmm. characters and like I, I mean it was the exact reason why I, I i just i stopped watching just the one we were going to talk about in the episode it's just you're at the point now where you're you're on board and you don't want to get off absolutely yeah that fast pace i noticed it 
especially the second time rewatching this episode. I was like, man, this is like really moving a lot faster than Babylon did. But uh, we we didn't get to ask you about that actually, Mike. Um, do you have any like quick things you wanted to say about five G and Babylon? Those are the two episodes that you missed with us. But anything notable stuck out to you about those? That you don't want to you don't want to lose out on? Oh man, you know I can't prepare for these episodes. Yeah, uh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You know what? You can bring it up later if it comes up. If you're like, well, you know, Babylon did that better or whatever you want to do. For sure, for sure. I think. What, what really that. stood out to me watching those episodes was the fact that I now have a mullet, um, and it, it's and, it, and it's hard it's hard to you know really tune into a show when you're rocking a mullet, yeah. So yeah, you're a bit you're a bit thirty years like you know late um, on the '60s for that mullet, but I'm not complaining. Um, well, I mean, we're gonna dive in here. Did you have anything general you wanted to say about Red in the Face um, before we we pop this in, pop in the VHS tape? Um, so this episode. Uh, when I first saw it, however many years ago, I remember it, but for a, I think, sort of odd reason. I'm trying to remember if it was this episode or another one later, but I think I actually saw this one out of order initially when I first watched it because uh, mm. so this is episode seven, right? It is. And I remember I initially watched the show, like I rented the season like uh, like a box set from the library because, you know, at the time, Netflix wasn't really like a streaming bowl option. You right. couldn't there's no way you could like really, you know, pop on a streaming service and watch the show. It was a lot easier to get like from the library, because if you were to do it through Netflix or through a video store or whatever, you'd have to like rent out each season by disc, which came in like four or five DVDs or whatever. Um, but when I watched it, I think I watched this one fourth because i think i remember watching this one after the third episode well this is a more Um, standalone episode right you know because we don't have you know any of the mid stuff we don't have any of the rachel stuff we don't have any dick whitman it's very much like it just exists as its own sort of side story like it still Mm -hmm. is involved with a lot of different things like pete and peggy to an extent but yeah you you, it's not hard it's not easy to get lost in this one or it's not hard to get I don't know what I'm saying. Right. But it didn't strike me as odd at the time because it has a direct follow up to episode three, as we'll discuss later with Betty's character. So I was just thought I was like, oh, this is a natural progression. Like, this is just like after that altercation in episode three, like this is what happens. And then I was looking at it. I was like, wait a minute. Like, I had to like check and be like, oh, wait, I, I jumped ahead because I just remember there's a there's a couple moments in this. I just remember being very memorable. And I just remember being like, OK, this is like the show getting really like petty and funny like after like setting up things with the third episode and then you know like watching i was like okay this is like this is kind of like where the show is kind of elevating in a certain way but then obviously like there are seeds that planted in the other three episodes but at the time i just remember this episode standing out more because it just felt like it was a little bit funnier a little bit quirkier than some of the other ones with the exception of like obviously in retrospect three has that too but I don't know, for some reason, I just remember when I was like a teenager, this episode stood out to me more for being a little bit bolder, a little bit more outlandish in the ways that it tackled humor and also just like the pettiness of the characters and also just frankly, the childishness of a lot of the characters, like the the teenage mentality of a lot of these characters, whether knowingly or not. So, yeah, yeah I Matt mean, Sites points that out in uh, mm-hmm. the, the critical companion we've been reading yeah. alongside this, right? Right. I mean, I, I think that's evident outside of his analysis, but I, yeah, I will uh, refer to that at certain points in this episode, I'm sure. 
Yeah, yeah, because I was just reading that, and I was like, yeah, yeah, it's it's certainly a factor. Um, I also think this is like a pretty. This episode is a pretty good like um, succession to New Amsterdam, because um, I get what you're saying with Marriage of Figaro, but in terms of like Pete's character and that whole thing with Peggy, I think the New Amsterdam stuff informs a lot of what happens here, like kind of carrying on that thread of Pete's masculinity. And one other thing, like with Marriage of Figaro, to what you're saying, that's an episode, episode three. That's kind of like the first. Mad Men episode that gets really bold with its structure to what you're saying. I think this is the first one that gets bold with its comedy and its willingness to not take itself too seriously, to be, you know, confident and to be like funny and kind of lighthearted. Uh, and that's, I think that is a major factor to what kind of show Mad Men ultimately becomes famous for, right? Because it's not a show that's like super dramatic all the time. If it was, I don't think it would be as popular. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, yeah, sir, go ahead, Mike. Oh, no. Yeah. I was going to say, and the way they build off that humor, right? Like the whole time, I think one of the funniest bits is, is Pete trying to defend this chip dip. And, and, and it leads to like character revealment for him. It re- it the Will Ashen smile that just bloomed in front of us it's, when you mentioned the chip and dip. It's a chip and dip. I, I, I want to talk about that more in a bit, but I'm so amused by Pete's like uh, descriptions and just his insistence on making sure everyone understands it. What do you have? The, two yeah. fingers in your ears? Yeah. <laughs> it's just the way he says it too. Chip dip. It's a chip dip. Uh, the sour cream and onions. I'll have to give you the recipe. Um, okay. So let's start this episode off. Um, unless you had one more thing, Mike. Let's move on. Let's do it. Okay. Don Draper. We open with him calling Betty's psychiatrist, Arnold Wayne, he's still being super horrific and he's getting information about Betty that, you know, he shouldn't. Uh, I think we we talked about this already in terms of like how this used to be legal and fine. Uh, Confidentiality wasn't a thing. And so what Dr. Wayne tells him is really interesting here. He's like, look, basically you're dealing with the emotions of child here. Uh, She gets consumed by petty jealousies, overwhelmed with everyday activities. And then he starts to chalk it up to this whole idea that like, well, this is how housewives just are. What are you going to do? You know, and it's a very banal kind of uh, misogyny that he just sort of delivers to Don. Don just sort of takes it. And I find it really fascinating how the episode starts with this, because this is an episode about masculinity. It's about how men act like kids and, you know, how, you know, people are trying to be who they, you know, can't be. And to start with Don essentially doing something that should emasculate him, which is like he can't even talk to his wife directly. He's got to he's got to call up her psychiatrist and get the goods. It's kind of uh, it's kind of telling, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where it's like an episode that has a bunch of these characters acting even more childish than we've seen them act before. This scene is like the one where they're like really, truly playing like adult, like Don Draper's in his office, like acting like the parent to his wife in this case, acting like, you know, like he's getting a a call from the principal or something and not his therapist, Uh, you know, like acting like trying to get an assessment on his wife. It's as if it's, as if it it was his like daughter or, you know, a child later, right. When like literally Francine goes to check on Betty, like she, Mm because of what she does at the grocery store. So that happens twice in this episode, at least. Yeah. But almost like they, they treat Betty, unfortunately, like as if she's like a play doll and it's just like, you know, like she's, she's not like a person. She's not someone with agency. She's just like this thing, like a pet almost at times, like they have to take care of, which is obviously quite tragic. And I'm sure it's going to lead to, a lot of devastating things to come with Betty, but you guys will know that better than me. 
at this point. Um, but yeah, I just, I mean, it, it, it kind of just adds to the the tragedy of, I think, Betty's character, but also just adds to the the general idea of this character, of these characters trying to act like adults, like a suit that they wear, like it's something that they just kind of have to do. And that is played up uh, pretty funnily in a funny way, I guess, uh, in the next scene where you see Roger with the milk. I was about to mention, he's milk. literally drinking yeah. milk for his ulcer. Yeah, yeah. Right. What a baby Roger, yeah. Right. Yeah, but he's like in the suit, you know, like he's like, you know, his well-dressed self. And he has this like comically large glass of milk and then he's putting vodka in it. So it's just, you know, another example of, you know, like he's like a child at heart, really. Like he's, you know, being scolded by his wife. He has to drink this milk like a, you know, a parent telling their kid, you know, have to drink this glass of milk. You have to drink a glass of milk for the day, uh, in this case for his ulcer. But he's like trying to make it work with like putting vodka in a way that a child would put like chocolate in their glass to make milk more enjoyable you know what i mean where do, where do you land though would you where do you land on the drinking milk from a glass i think that's what's more important here uh i mean do it i just think alcohol and milk just do not go along well i mean as much as i love the big Lebowski, i was gonna say the dude would not had, abide man Mm-mm. i i tried I've tried white Russians. My dad's a big fan of white Russians. I just cannot. I, I just it's maybe the grossest thing. What about like a boozy milkshake? Drank. Those are delicious. Oh, yeah. Have I not told you this, Speaking John? Of like being like a teenager, I don't know if I've told you this, John. Well, yeah, you I don't like ice cream. Despise milkshakes. Like I don't like milkshakes. You, well, you at hate all. ice cream, so that's not a surprise. Right. Mike, yeah, are, you, are you are you like yeah. lactose intolerant, or is this just just like no? He just no, doesn't. Like I the love taste. cheese. I love cheese. <laughs> he just can't do ice cream. If you give him if you give him some briars, he's gonna throw it into your face. He's going to puke oysters all over you. Wow. That is, uh, Will, I'm going to look at you in a whole different light now, but I mean, I do. Yeah. I mean, I love cheesecake though. After this episode, maybe less so. Um, but you know, I, I, I do like cheese and various milk related foods, but, uh, milkshakes, white Russians, ice cream, like clam chowder. Uh, I haven't had it in a while. No, no. Uh, well, jury's then, out on that one. Then I'll, I'll reveal this little tidbit a little early and that w- the stuff that he's puking is actually a mixture of like clam chowder. Um, so that it could make you, you can hate I mean, clam chowder instead if you want. We're definitely going to talk about the puke later. I, I mean, I have a lot to say about <laughs> the, the texture. Puke. The, the, yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. You, you think I'm joking, but I have a lot to say about this puke. Uh, it's fantastic. Okay, so um, we we already talked about Roger drinking his milk and vodka. Uh, Bert Cooper comes in, and again, Bert Cooper's treating him like a kid. Calls him Peanut, you know, because he's scolding him for his cigarette. So yeah, chalk another one up to what you're talking about, Will, like the the babying relationship between adults. Uh, because Bert has been like a fatherly figure to Roger this whole time. We're getting more Roger in this episode than we have before, and I'm I'm really happy to see it, right? Because Roger is like such a great character. I was actually reading about how originally he had auditioned for the part of Don um, and they kind of Matthew Weiner kind of snuck him into the show under false pretenses being like, okay, look, you know, you're not Don Draper. You know, it's kind of like this episode. It's like, you're not the young, you know, they're not, we're not looking at you. Like we're looking at John Hamm, like in the bar. Right. But he's just like, we got this other part for you. We got this part that's perfect for you. And John Slattery sticks around because I think he just kills it. I think he kills this role in a way that uh, we can't say enough over the course of seven seasons. And that was the thing for me coming back to this episode is remembering like really where his character starts in this episode, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I know we, we've mentioned this, but like, I just grow to love him so much by the end of the show. Um, but in this episode, I'm curious what your thoughts are, Will. Like, obviously, I don't think you end this episode if it's your first time watching being like, oh, Roger, that's that's the dude I'm going to enjoy seeing the rest of this series. 
Yeah, he's a little bit like he's way less likable in this episode than he has been before. He's a, a bit of a hound dog in this one, I will say. Yeah, his uh, name is on the building, so he has a sense of yeah. entitlement. There you go. I feel that um, every time I they, go into like a Michael's craft store, just by the way. <laughs> they, uh, they, there you go. They lay down the groundwork for this being another uh, step in the Nixon storyline of the season. Uh, Nixon's people are going to be coming by the office at the end of the week to see if Sterling Cooper is right for their presidential candidate. So we're going to get a couple more scenes involving the Nixon campaign. Also, keep that in mind, too, with the JFK stuff, because there's a lot to that. A lot of, a lot of Kennedy stuff kind of like percolating here, too, in terms of like the relationship between Nixon and Kennedy as like the older guy, the younger guy. They're not even that different in age. Same way like Roger and Don aren't that different in age, but it does make a huge difference to the perception, perception that people have for them. So then we move on and, you know, Roger, he he's just a little lonely. Like this is the part of the episode where he's a little bit more sympathetic, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sympathetic when he's sort of like he's got his paws all over Joan Holloway, played by Christina Hendricks, trying to bombard her with an invitation to his house because his wife and daughter are out of town. So, yeah, actually, I'm not sympathetic at all. I take all that back. But no, Joan, Joan is going uh, somewhere else with Carol, the roommate she mentioned in a previous episode. And there you go. They're going on some trip. They don't say where they're going. I assume, Will Ashton, that uh, you have a few recommendations for them. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I thought, uh, did they not say where they, I thought they did mention it briefly. I was looking it up, but I thought they did mention so. where they're going. Am I forgetting? I don't think so. The only location they mention is like, uh, Roger's like, well, not this time, but we'll go to Puerto Rico. And then he's like, she's like, I don't care if it's Cuba. I need a little notice. And then she leaves. She leaves them high and dry. Who knows where they're going? They're going on the train. We knew that. All right. So then next up, Roger goes to Don. He's like, all right, well, like Joan's not happening. Oh, and I forgot to mention, too, they play the uh, the song from Babylon in this scene, um, the, the song that ends the episode Babylon, um, but they do it in a more upbeat way. I think uh, Will, the critical companion, brings that up, too, actually, um, that that's playing in the background and it's kind of recontextualizing the way that Babylon ends with Joan and Roger split apart as that song is kind of being weepy. This time, Joan is the one who's taking control and being like, I'm out, you know, I'm going to go hang out with Carol. What are you going to do about it? So then we move on to the next thing. And so Roger goes to Don and he, he kind of like gets him to go have a drink with him. And then Pete comes in and then Pete uh, tries to find out what they're up to. And so it's even more pathetic because Pete is just like, Hey, I could hang out too. And uh, you know, there's still a little bit of a reeling there from the New Amsterdam episode, like I mentioned, because Roger, of course, is still kind of like, you know, you suck, uh, like because they had to to dump him and all of that, or they had to like keep him hired, even though he disrespected Don. And then, uh, oh no, Will, were you going to say something? No, no, no. I just uh, was not going to leave you high and dry with that comment, <laughs> but uh, you can keep going. Right, right. So uh, eventually, Roger does convince. Uh, Don to have a drink with him, um, even though Don is kind of like, well, you know, I'm supposed to have dinner with Betty. Um, and then I forgot to mention that Roger calls Pete Paul. And it, again, it's kind of like a nice little joke. That That's is that what you guys were waiting? Yeah, for? that's <laughs> where I, I was waiting for that lead in because it's it's not just that he does it. It's the side comment afterwards of how much he loves to do it. Like, I love to see mm -hmm. how much he wants Don's attention, but wants to annoy Pete Campbell. Uh I, I feel like that at work all the time, being like, am I am I Pete Campbell? <laughs> oh, I was going to say, are you doing this to AP Campbell in your work? No, I'm younger than everybody else. I'm like, I'm exactly in Pete Campbell's shoes where you like want to feel like you're included and not sure if you're 
purposely being left out or if that's just the way it goes. But I don't know. No one's ever called me Mitch, at least. Oh, and I did forget to mention, too, when Roger is like, hey, what are you doing tonight? And Peggy thinks he's talking to him. <laughs> or he's talking to her. Uh, and I was like, oh, Peggy. It's like, well, I'll let you have I'll let you have that one. <laughs> Um, okay, so then uh, Pete, who's kind of taking a bit of a barb there, he starts to talk to Peggy. She reveals that she's writing copy now for Beljolie lipstick. Uh, Mike, that's another thing that you missed. You missed the infamous Beljolie lipstick scene. Uh, I assume you're a fan of how that whole thing played out. I mean, weren't we just starting this podcast off saying that you know we were mad at the patriarchy? So uh, yeah, no, I love that scene. It was really you turned it was around really, completely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. Um, So that's still progressing. Uh, You know, we're just getting a little bit of like, okay, Peggy's working on the account. Maybe that's going to pay off later in the season. So then Pete is kind of, Pete kind of takes it interestingly here because he's like, he's clearly taken aback. Like he wasn't expecting this, um, that Freddie Rumson would trust Peggy with a responsibility like this. But, you know, even though he clearly has a little bit of like condescension, you know, of like, oh, is it for like sanitary towels or whatever, or napkins? Um, Eventually, he's kind of like, hey, I'll, I'll help you out. Um, I'll, I'll take a look like I do for the guys. And uh, do you read this as, you know, Pete kind of being like genuinely just like nice? Or do you have like the accurate reading of it? Pete's a snake, bro. You think so? Oh, unf- Part of me wants to believe that he's actually kind of like, oh, I'll help you out. Like, gen- like no, maybe he actually is just trying to be nice. You don't think he so? just got I made felt small by his boss and he just needs to make yeah, somebody else feel small. Hildy just emasculated him too because she's just like, oh, your wife's at the Four Seasons, and you know he's she's kind of like breaking the mood there. I don't know. Are we gonna get a hot take from Will? Uh, not for this scene, no. Unfortunately, not. Okay, so it sounds like you two are ganging up against me. That's fine. Um, I'll keep working on the Belgerly account on my own. All right, so then we go to Roger and Don. They're at a place called the Oak Room Bar, and. They are just kind of like hanging out. They're having a conversation. Um, you can kind of tell that like Don feels a little bit bad for Roger, but he's also kind of like, man, why are you trying to like edge your way into my life right now? <laughs> because, you know, Roger even makes a point of like, you must be really hungry. And Don's like, yeah, uh, Betty's making dinner. And he's just like, oh, you know, Mona never cooks for me anymore. Kind of mentions that like Margaret stopped eating and then, Clearly, he's trying to get the invite. He's inviting himself over. So then Don finally relents and lets it happen. He leaves to go get the phone. But then the two ladies that Roger has been like, ooh, they're making eyes at us. Uh, he realizes that they were only making eyes at Don. They have zero interest in Roger whatsoever. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, better luck next uh, time. And also, I think the dialogue in the scene is pretty pointed. Like, I, I believe Don says something along the lines of, uh, or, well, first, Roger says, like, when women turn 30, they lose that glow in their eyes or something along those lines. Yeah, it's lines. like someone turns out a light. Yeah. And then, and then, and uh, then, happened to me when I hit 30. I mean, oh boy. Uh, well, that's not encouraging for me to hear at 29, but yeah, I'll have yeah. to. Mike is Make even do. farther off, right? So, uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm in my glory years still. Yeah, you're in, like, you're in your peak yeah, I'm years. like glowing, glowing. <laughs> but, and then Don quips on the online lines of like, I don't think there's 30 years between them, which, I mean, like I said, kind of goes back to that whole idea of like, they, at least Roger in this case, just kind of sees himself still having that teenage boy mentality. I think Matt Dolores even says as much in his, uh, 
his recap, like his, like his mind, even though his body is, you know, he's getting older, he's clearly, you know, little over the hill in some respects. Like he still perceives himself as this young whipsnapper kind of guy who can ring all the ladies and kind of take what he wants. And so, you know, this whole feud between Don and him kind of kickstarts because he feels emasculated and feels like he is robbed the way he's owed because women won't pay attention to him, presumably because he's older. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear here he's a man in decline in terms of his physical age in an era when physical prowess is everything in terms of how men measure up to each other and how masculinity is defined. And so with Roger, the only things that he can lord over Don are his power, you know, in terms of like the workplace and also the fact that, you know, he, you know, they mentioned him multiple times that he is a veteran of World War II, which is considered the, the, the big glory war, you know, that's referenced multiple times in this episode. Uh, Hitler's even mentioned in the Burt scene we just missed or skipped or talked about briefly. So there you go. So then, oh, yeah, because there's that, uh, it, what's a quip that he has uh, in that scene? It's a funny one. All I, all I just heard was uh, that Hitler doesn't smoke and I do. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. What, yeah that's a good line. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's yeah. a great line because smoking is really cool. That's why I carry around my herbal cigarettes everywhere. So we get we cut to Don uh, calling Betty, and it's a comically harried situation. She's got she's in her like undergarments, basically curlers in her hair. Matthew Weiner is basically screaming, you know, of like she is she is a woman, you know, at war. At, at you know, you know, one kid in her hands, you know. Sally is doing gymnastics. It's chaos, absolute chaos. And what do you know? Don has the audacity to be like, hey, you need to cook more food. You know, you need to do this. Well, I'm hanging out. I'm drinking, you know, entertaining my boss. Now I'm going to put this on you last minute, no notice. And when you push back a little mm. bit, I'm going to pressure you even more uh, because yeah. Don's not a good person. Not really. No. And then uh, even though he doesn't really mention it, like she has to get like all dressed up and stuff like that. Like you yep. said, she had the curlers. And all that, like she was in like a uh, robe or whatever in the previous scene, but she has to like dress up like they're going a night on the town because his boss just decides he wants to come over. So, you know, another thing about how women have to perceive or be perceived in society, I guess. What, what do you want me to say, Betty? That I want you to be happy and to eat a meal at night? Come and on. He, and what I get that and for? he blames in your own house. He blames everybody, you know, but himself, you know? It's all what you want me to do, Roger. My boss is making me do it. And to Roger, it's, oh, of course, Betty would love to have you. He's just the the middleman in each conversation. No personal responsibility. Which, again, goes back to the idea that Don himself is like a child. He's like, hey, what do you want me to do? I'm just, you know, uh, I don't have any authority here. I'm just the, the small kid guy. I'm the kid in this thing. You know, what do you want from me? So then we, of course, get to the actual dinner scene and... Betty is, of course, taking all the punishment, all of the awfulness of this situation onto herself because she's eating like a salad instead of the steak that she cooked for herself. Um, while, of course, Roger and Don are eating their full dinner. And, and it's it's a full on like, wow, um, I can't believe like you expect this whole thing to end with Betty being like being the one who scolds Don, attacks Don over it, really gets on his case. But the power dynamics are just not that in this era. And it's it's. It's hard to watch because you're, you know, he's the one who gets upset with her because over the course of this sequence, uh, Roger starts to flirt with her a lot. 
he uh, and he's perceiving her kind of like being friendly and entertaining as her flirting. Now, there is some contention and some people say she is actually kind of like flirting in this scene, um, kind of like innocently, like without trying to do anything, you know, necessarily. She's just trying to be nice, but in a flirty way. Do you guys agree with that? Because if not, I, I have heard an interesting counter argument to it. No, I mean, Betty's job right now is to be the host. Like I read this scene maybe through a modern context, I guess, where I could put myself in those shoes and be at a friend's house and maybe I don't have a great relationship with their wife and they're, you know, they're being friendly. They're asking me stories about myself or trying to learn more and making jokes and just making it a good fun time. I would not perceive that within a, a mile of flirting. So I definitely agree with that. But wait, 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 Will, you it sounds like you have something to say. You have like a stake in your hand. You're ready to throw at the screen. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the scene's kind of twofold where I don't think she's necessarily flirting with Roger in this, but she is like he's like uh you both are saying, she is being a good host. She is trying to like kind of be lively, like I said before. She is acting like this is a night on the town, even though they're just in their own home or whatever. But uh, you know, that scene later on with her and Francine where they're talking in the living room after the uh, grocery store scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. She does have that moment where she talks about how, you know, like because of her mother or because of social pressures or whatever, she does really rely on her looks and her beauty and her, you know, way with men as a sort of like social standard. And that she does, you know, have this sense of like she wants to be appreciate and valued by men because she's she feels like that's kind of like the way that she can be valued because there is this sort of longing and emptiness that comes with her life something that was highlighted with that therapy scene earlier uh in the season then referenced earlier in this episode she's flattered for sure right right? that's all that's all it really is it's not sort of like oh i want to get it on with roger it's more like she let herself be charmed by him because he is a charming guy and that's the ironic thing about it is like his charm is something that she appreciated but it's something that he like weaponizes. And also mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like it is something that Roger does have is that he's he is a charming, suave person, but he doesn't really like equate that with like being a, a manly man. Mm-hmm. But I don't I mean, certainly he she's not like hitting on him or, you know, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. She's she's not like flirting with him. But I mean, I think she is charmed by him, as you mentioned. And I think there is some, you know, there's something going on there, but I don't think it's anything deep or lasting or meaningful i think you know there's kind of like maybe like you know just kind of casually getting along like she she has she's having yeah she's having fun you know maybe more so than she anticipated but i i don't think there's anything serious and certainly roger is reading way too much into it and then don later reads way 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 too much into it yeah roger puts the moves on her specifically she rejects him instantly and is clearly not comfortable with this in any context but you know also because of adultery um, and then Don, of course, uh, notices the whole thing. Uh, he comes back in, uh, waves Roger away, and Roger, of course, like drunk drives off, and you know Don doesn't care. You know he doesn't try to stop him or anything. And there you Shoot. go. I mean, um, I talked about bad. before with the scene where uh, I think Midge throws a TV outside of the window. <laughs> the scene with, here, but with with the car. <laughs> yeah, I think there's such great opportunity here for Foley art. That you could have like, you know, like meow or like, yeah, I'm walking here. A bunch or, of garbage you know, cans shuffling. Like, wee, wee. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, well, um, I think it's a missed opportunity. Someone, uh, someone in the neighborhood serious. yells, my fountain again. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just got this fountain. <laughs> uh, welcome to Wassening, I guess. <laughs> um, um, I did want to yeah. talk a little bit about the the scene in the kitchen. Just, I guess, more for how it's framed. I don't know if you guys felt this, but I was glad that uh, Matt Zoller's likes point out that like it feels a little bit more stagey than some of the other scenes in the show. Like some, I don't know if it's necessarily more like the writing or how it's it's filmed. Like it's a lot of close ups, and also it's like the way that Don is shot. Like he seems less secure of himself. Like there, there's a little bit more vulnerability to Don. Like he seems a little bit more down to earth. He seems less put together, partly because he's well, drunk, yeah. partly because he's caught in this moment of uh, you know raw emotionality. But it is just rare at this point, I think, to see Don have a humbling moment like this. Mm-hmm. He, he, like his hair is not really as together as usually is like he's a little bit more unkempt and i think that's uh notable i don't know if you guys agree or not the staginess too of like the, there's a moment when you see don like starting to get annoyed with betty and it's when you know rogers is speak like uh, rogers says something to the effect of like oh you know you're gonna make me look bad or whatever and she's just mm-hmm. like that's impossible and then don is like kind of glancing to the side a little bit of uh, like betty like he can't believe she mm-hmm. just said that and like the staginess, like the fact that it doesn't cut and you see his expression linger is exactly what I think, you know, I forgot to mention the director here is Tim Hunter. I think that's what he was going for. Yeah. Also, like the just the dialogue, I think, has kind of more of like a, a stage air to it. Like each line feels very yeah, telling the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, Don kind of brings back the like the thing they heard from the th- psychiatrist to weaponize it against Betty. You know, like you're acting Uncool. like a child or something like that. Yeah. You know, I it just it just felt like more stage like to me than most of their scenes, which feel like they're deliberately trying to be more, uh, you know, like cinematic. I guess this one felt a little bit stagier, you know, especially with the close ups kind of, you know, it sits still. Yeah, I don't know. It just I think it's an interesting scene to note. I, I did like, you know, Betty, like calling out Dawn on his aggression, though, saying, what do you want to do? Bounce me against mm-hmm. the walls. Um, I think just one like that make you feel better. Yeah. Because, you know, Don doesn't get called on his shit a lot, especially by Betty. Yeah. Uh, so in that. And his response is like, that's when he weaponizes yeah. the information. Which right? makes you. You see what he You has, realize yeah. Don is such a bad guy. I, I mean. I don't like him. Yeah. I mean, I love him, but I don't like him. I, I mean, like Betty, I guess. In the next scene, like, I know, like, drunk driving isn't as common of a thing back then or at least as well, it was common but it wasn't like well I, what i mean is that like you know there weren't like as many like psas or whatever but i mean it wasn't as stigmatized as what you're saying right sure yeah but i mean don knows that like roger could very well get an accident die oh, of course given the amount of drink he his drank and he's like watching him go you know basically joking so there is like some kind of dark uh edge to the scene that like don is just basically saying like if roger dies i don't even care he tried to hit on my wife and that's well. You know, I mean, it's. I don't even think it's something where he thinks Roger would actually die because I don't think that that's like. Well, he as could a, die. Is what I'm saying. Like, I think it's more like care. he might get. He might crash his car and that'd be like financially mm-hmm. inconvenient. But I don't think Don expects him to get hurt. If that I don't makes know. sense, or like, I don't know if I agree with it's that. almost. I I think Sorry. you, you yeah. can go well. I would, I mean, I'm not saying that he expects him to get hurt. I just think he doesn't even care if he does. He's like, he indifferent just, to that, but probably right. doesn't see it as a likely possibility. I think he sees it as like, yeah, he might, he might like hit that fountain, you know, and then sure. whatever. My it's life. not my problem. It's, it, it's almost <laughs> as Don is caught up in his, you know, his day-to-day activities and overwhelmed with petty jealousies, you could say. Hmm. Sure. Astute. Fairly astute. All right. So we go to Sterling Cooper the next day. 
And, uh, you know, the, the boys, as they are commonly referred to as, they go to Pete and they're like, hey, yeah, why didn't you have drinks with us? You know, we got Kenny, we got Paul. And uh, he says, well, you know, like, I got this box. And we've made it to the scene. I, I see Will, like, stroking his chin in anticipation. Pete, Pete, they're like, oh, yeah, what, what's in this box, uh, you know, Pete? Like, what, what, what is this? I, I want to know, like, you know, what people return at weddings. And, and yeah. Pete's like, well, let me show you. Dramatic close-up. <laughs> a chip and dip, which was, uh, it, it's a ceramic monstrosity. And I mean that as a compliment. Um, it was given to Matthew Weiner's parents as a wedding gift. Yes, and it was part of their registry. It was. It was. Uh, they registered. Um, and I, I like to think this is one of those moments where I'm like, does Matthew Weiner see Pete Campbell as his dad? Is that why Pete Campbell marries a picture of his mom in the pilot? You know what I mean? And uh, it's like, considering th- there are a lot of like things with Pete Campbell and his father. I mean, uh, I, I, you don't see I it? know. I know I'm a little green to this show. I think there's a lot of Freudian things you could dive into, particularly casting his son in the third episode with the scene with Betty. I think there's just a oh, lot of things. I think that was things. just random. I don't think he was trying to say it. No, I'm just kidding. Of course. I, I don't, I'm not even saying that he's doing these things deliberately. I'm just saying that like, oh, I think, I think a is. psychoanalyst, you know, kind of similar to Sopranos in that respect. Like there's a lot of like just psychoanalyst things going on here. But maybe in this case, I don't know. Maybe it's undeliberate. I just keep, I I no just keep imagining where like Matthew Weiner's dad comes in and he's like, all right, son. This is the chip and dip. What's uh, that, Dad? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you got fingers in your ears, kid? <laughs> no, no. I, I just like to imagine, like, you know, like Matthew Weiner's visiting his parents, just like, hey, could I have that old picture of mom? I'm just going to borrow it for the pilot. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. That'd be lovely. Yeah. And that's uh, when my dad slept with a secretary. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, hey, remember that chip and dip? Oh, do I? We got a safe in the attic right now. What do you need that old thing for? Oh, you know, just for a scene we got. Oh, it's going to be so nice to see that on the TV. We're definitely not going to yeah. make fun of the fact that it looks like a butt. Sure. Um, um, sorry, yeah. did, I, did I say something that I wasn't supposed to say? Is that I don't know. Um, but I mean, I, Sour I apparently, cream with brown onions. I mean, how do you not? Well, we'll talk about the chip and dip itself in a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, apparently We're they there. treated. It's happening. Well, apparently they treated this thing with the utmost respect on set. Of course. Like you can kind of tell that uh, what's the actor that plays? What was the actor that plays Pete Campbell? Vincent um, Vincent Cartizer. You can kind of tell he's a little uncomfortable. I think in certain scenes holding it because like if I break this, they do a lot uh, of shots where Pete he's Campbell, holding the box, but you can't yeah, see it. Right. But you can kind of just tell like if I break this thing, Pete Campbell ain't coming back for season two. So I got to be real careful. But if I'm Vincent thing. Cartizer, I could just be like, well, Matthew Weiner, I'm your father. And I say that you're grounded. <laughs> and then um, like Matthew Weiner literally is just like, okay, yeah. Uh, he's like, I have a stroke of your hair. And he's like, what? <laughs> yeah, he hasn't seen that episode yet. Yeah, yeah. He, he watched he it out of order too. Yeah, he, he didn't watch. Uh, well, I, I had seen that episode before this one. Um, but uh, in any case, yes, the chip and the dip, which I, I love that Pete, to Pete, this is the most natural thing it's in the obvious, world. It's like, he has it's, to explain it how many times? It's like, it's a chip and it's a dip. What more do you need me to explain to you? You got a chip and you got no, dip. No, he goes deep. You got them together. He goes into a specific, yeah. he puts them in a specific scenario. Picture this, boys. Yeah. <laughs> it's 1960. <laughs> you, you, you got a group You're, of people. You got two bags of chips. He gives them the recipe. He takes them through in full details. This man loves his chip and dip. 
yeah, well, I mean, we, that's kind of yeah. we get other cues in this episode that Pete is a modern man. You know, the idea of like hosting and like having these kinds of gizmos at, at a party and, you know, thinking that Kennedy is like Elvis. I mean, Pete's ahead of the curve. I mean, Pete has a weird, complicated relationship to the chip and the dip. I think you're going to say he has a weird, complicated relationship to the truth, which is like. Sure. I mean, you can say any number of things about Pete, but <laughs> I mean, I think it is true that like. There's something about that I think, you know, you can analyze it as it, it represents like stability or like some domesticality to him. Like there is something that he fears about this where it is like representing a, a sense of complacency with his marriage, his newfound marriage and all that. But like Mike is saying, like there is something to the chip and dip where he like genuinely thinks it's kind of neat. You know, it's like Marge with the rock. Like he just thinks it's neat. Like he really he's charmed by the idea yeah. that you can you can have a chip and dip and you don't have to worry about what you do with your second hand. You can just he's use not the letting one. it go easily. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like having four or something. You just <laughs> well, we have to. You yeah, know? it wouldn't yeah. have been an issue if somebody hadn't have gotten two of this. Have you had, though, a good, thick Ruffles Ridge chip with some French onion dip? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I am an it, it's so good. It's like the perfect. Is that who we're sponsored by this week? I wish. I wish. <laughs> All right. I genuinely think we spend way too much time on the chip. <laughs> no, it's not more. I have some, so far. I, hang on. I have. I have one last thing about this. The, you have like three uh, binders in front of you. I, I can't. I do. Yeah. Uh, I already showed this to John, but I wanted to point it out to Mike uh, and the listeners, since they're listening. Welcome uh, to hell, Mike. Uh, I haven't looked too far into the Reddit subreddits of this because i don't want to get spoiled but i was curious about like how people respond to chip and dip and i found like like back when like the show was on tv there was like this old reddit thread where people were like so what's the deal with the chip and dip and i was like i really hope people just like don't like i mean I'm, i knew at least one person would be like you know it represents like what i just said before like represents mescality and all this stuff but you know 95 percent of the other responses were perfect <laughs> where it's just like it's a chip <laughs> and dip and like they're all just like you got fingers in your ears it's chip and dip. <laughs> and then like the like the we original poster was just like, well, when you put it that way, it makes sense. Like he was playing <laughs> along with it. I it's it's one of the rare days where I'm like, you know what? This Reddit site, it ain't so bad. I feel like this could go down as your favorite episode so like at the season just for this chip and dip thing. Well uh no. I just like having fun talking about the chip and dip, much like Pete Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, next, Roger kind of goes into Don's office and he's kind of he's doing the apology, but he's doing it in a way where he's like, how do I do this without actually apologizing? So he literally is just sort of like, here it is, like kind of like hoping that Don gets the hint. Don Don doesn't like Don's playing it cool. He's pretending to be oblivious. And then Ron tries to tell like a story. You know, he's trying to be like one time I parked in the wrong building. You know, he's doing the typical Rod Roger charm. I like how. Uh, Tim Hunter is the director, as we mentioned. Bridget Bedard is the writer. I like how they're sort of constructing this in a way where the usual like Roger silver tongue isn't really working for him. It's kind of not swaying Don. And it's nice to see that his powers really do have a limit in this situation because Don is just continuing to be like, oh, just you wait. The, the end of this episode is where things are really going to be set right, at least in Don's eyes. So. Uh, interesting transition there. It also on the on the note of you know these characters to be, being children. It reminded me of like every apology my older brother ever had to give me. You know the one where it's yeah. like, sorry if you were upset. Yeah, you're gonna make this hard on me, aren't you? 
<laughs> just I forget. So, Mike, you have just older siblings, or do oh you yeah, have, I'm the uh, baby. I got older brother, older sister, and let me tell you, they never were sincere. They always they they, they felt like they had their names on the side of your house, exactly. and they got a natural sense exactly. the time. Exactly. I guess in their case, it's natural. Um. So then we we go back to Pete. And Pete is missing a liquid lunch with the boys. And again, another emasculating moment for Pete to, to the point where it's like, I'm not even sure he realizes how like emasculated he is until a certain point in this sequence. But he's in line um, at a department store. This woman casually just demolishes him, like just embarrasses him in front of everybody and like seemingly without even trying because she's basically like you know oh you know i you know she mentions her husband who's also an advertising he's like oh i haven't heard of them and she's like yeah that's why you're in line and you can like hear like pete's soul just like shriveling up and dying at, at that like perfective per- perfection in terms of the delivery i mean you know what the old adage is if you can't take the heat don't wait in line at the whatever JC Penny registry line <laughs> to return your chip and dip. I think I know? think Michael would say Macy's since he's a, he's oh, convinced all of these department stores are Macy's. Yeah, every every, every department store is just Macy's. Even I Minkins. Mean, was it Minkins? Okay. I was just editing the episode three and like Mike went hard on like the Macy's apologia. Uh, I was I was listening. I was just like, man, Mike, what's going on, man? Like. What did Macy do? Oh. Will's yeah. got chip and dip, and I have Macy's. You know, we both have our things. <laughs> yeah, your I mean, yeah. Over the course of however many ninety something episodes we'll have of this, we'll find out our own weird little uh, eccentric obsessions. I guess, much like Matthew Weiner, things will come out in a psychoanalyst sort of way throughout these varied conversations of ours. I'm sure. <laughs> That's right. Um, and so Pete just continues to get embarrassed. He's trying to explain the trip and dip to these uh, store clerks, as we mentioned. Um, and then Rosemary, who's like, she's she's she is not about Pete Campbell. She's like the aunt. She's like the nega Peggy. <laughs> like she's like the complete opposite of Peggy in every single possible way. She's just like store credit. Um, eventually, a, a friend of Pete's, a college friend named Matherton, uh, who's played by uh what is his name ted sears i want to say he uh he, he was in masters of sex and uh, another masters of sex person because we were talking about uh, the allison characters on that show too but he he kind of shows up and it's like p what you doing here gets kind of embarrassed matherton's kind of like this traditionally like handsome dude uh he hits Humps on campbell is what he calls him he, in a yeah old college he calls him humps. yeah humps to camp or isn't it humps to camel humps to camel something like that yeah pretty mean um, I mean, I, I, Mike's called me that, but I thought it was a compliment until I watched this episode. Well, and then, of course, yeah. I just say, I mean, I was just gonna say, like, there's no worse way to dress down Pete Campbell, and he gets literally the three worst things possible, like right in a row. Mm-hmm. He cares so much about his title and where he works, gets dressed down by the late. Like this lady has no idea how good of an insult she gives him, and then it's yeah. you know seeing his peers, somebody he wants to be respected by doesn't go well for him so last ditch effort i'm gonna flirt my way to get what i want i'm gonna be silver tongued my man walked away with only store credit yeah and he even tries to be like oh matherton has the clap but of course they end it with rosemary's just sort of like wow that's pathetic but like you i mean yeah i would say this is probably the hardest 
cringiest scene to watch of the season so far. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with that, but all purposely so, of course, not like, you know, unintentional. Well, I think it's for me, it's between this and the Roger and Betty scene earlier in the kitchen. I Yeah, I mean, that's hard to watch, but I feel like this is just, it goes on for so long and you just <laughs> yeah. see, and I feel like, I don't know, I mean, I have to rewatch the scene to say if this is true or not, but I feel like Pete gets smaller and smaller as the scene goes along, especially because, mm-hmm. you know, Teddy is such a tall guy, you know, so like alpha, alpha male type, and he just, you, you know, he just becomes like a boy, you know, uh, even more so than he already is. He just gets, you know, smaller and smaller, and that continues uh in a scene later on that we'll discuss in a bit that's right that's right so pete ends up using that store credit on a 22 caliber rifle he's showing it off to the boys uh paul ken and harry um harry's first i think appearance in, in the episode or like kind of like actually doing something um and they're hanging out um and pete takes the the rifle out starts pointing at all the people and a really nice pov shot actually uh really well done um very on the nose the way that Pete is like pretending to be a kid straight out of like the boys life magazine thing from new, uh, not new Amsterdam. Uh, I think that was five G and he's pointing it like at all the secretaries pointed at Peggy. Yeah. And then finally Hildy takes it away from him because he's been misbehaving. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it is point that he's like only really doing this at the women in the office. Like he doesn't point the yes. guy, any of the guys like, you know, kind of added to the idea that, you know, to these men, Women are just like playthings. Like he, he's almost sort of indifferent if he accidentally hits one of these women, unfortunately. But mm. yeah, you know. I mean, he points it to the guys in the office at first. But know? the guys, they yeah, all. I mean, the POV. John, but the guys, yeah. they are like, oh, get out of the way because like they're in tune to what's happening and they feel like they can do that. No, none of the women, one, even notice, pay attention to what's happening or even try to get out of the way because they're just, mm-hmm. right. you know, they're, 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 they're yeah. busy. They're, they're, they're the only ones still in this whole fucking episode working. No other work gets done. That's true. <laughs> yeah, literally, like Don and Roger are supposed to be working, and they're off, you know, schmoozing and boozing. They, you know, they're the adults, and these are the boys just playing with their playthings. There you go. You know? And you know, I mean, there is something very phallic about the gun too. If you want to go there, but yeah, I was gonna comment on that. Sorry, one hundred percent. There's literally no. After getting emasculated, there's absolutely nothing more because I don't think lifted trucks existed yet that you could do besides buy a gun and bring it to where you work. <laughs> oh, the sixties. <laughs> uh, man. So then, uh, the, the boys are told by Hildy. Oh yeah. You got to head over to the meeting. Um, they're talking about the, the whole Nixon campaign now. So, uh, yeah, we have Roger in this meeting. We have Bert. I don't even think we've seen really Bert interacting with anybody besides Roger and Don in the office to this point. Um, so we kind of get a new moment, I think there for the first time in the show. And uh, it's an interesting like group of people. Uh, you can sort of tell that they have a lot of different like heads trying to like come together to talk about what they're going to do about. Uh, at first, it's mentioned like Lyndon Johnson it might be the running mate to Kennedy, and they're kind of saying, "Oh, there's no way it could be Kennedy." But Bert is like, "It's going to be Kennedy." He he clearly is like pointing that out. There's an interesting moment here where you know, first of all, like we already kind of mentioned the Nixon Kennedy gap. Uh, in terms of age, it's very similar. It, it parallels a lot of other things in this episode. It also parody or it parallels the whole idea of like Nixon and Kennedy, uh, Nixon getting red in the face uh, during uh, the infamous televised debate. It was, I think, the first one ever that a presidential debate was televised. And so people saw Nixon kind of squirming. And a lot of people, a lot of historians quote or reference that as a real turning point 
in the campaign because up until that point, uh, Nixon had been leading because he was seen as like the person like, well, you know, you need an experienced man with his finger on the button. But when people saw Kennedy's charm, his charisma, they saw that he could articulate himself better. He, they saw him as Pete Campbell astutely points out a bit of a rock star an Elvis. Uh, that's kind of what carried JFK to victory. Spoiler alert for history. Um, so yeah, I, I do like that. They, they are like the Nixon campaign. It's not the Kennedy thing. I wonder if like other shows would worry about like, well, you can't have, you can't have them rooting for Nixon or like working for that. This is a more interesting show than that though. This is a show that's actually doing something compelling with its storylines. And I think it's also hitting on the point of like, you know, the worst thing our characters are doing are being stuck in their ways and not moving towards the future. Um, and so that I think this is highlighted with Nixon and Kennedy as well. I was going to say the same thing. So <laughs> glad Mike pointed it out. All right. So we, oh, but, uh, yeah, uh, but just one, I mean, I, I think you did already kind of casually sort of mention this, but yeah, this is the first scene with Bert and uh pete together right i think in the show so far if i'm not mistaken yeah because bert talks about him you know but they, yeah, i don't remember seeing them interact but this is yeah like this is the first time we see them together certainly after um bert basically saves pete from getting fired yeah. by don and roger and i think there is something interesting that like even though like he's like well, we have to keep him on they all sort of emasculate pete throughout the meeting you know like they dismiss his suggestion of elvis and you know it's almost like it's like bring your child to work day and he's like the yeah, kid yeah. in well, the Roger office. Roger says it's like, well, now the adults can talk about what's right, going on. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, it, they treat him the same way as if like you brought your son into the office and he's like, what if we had a, a monster truck that talked? And it's like, you know what, son, you're right. Monster trucks is getting greenlit and sent to theaters. And this is Paramount Studios. I, I That was a weird detour I just made, but that's actually, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Mike. Did you know you know the movie Monster Trucks? Oh, I'm I'm very familiar with the uh, the the fire dumpster that was Monster Trucks. Did you know that it was actually pitched by a four year old? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> so that's what I'm thing referencing. Will has ever said about Army Hammer? <laughs> no, well, well, I don't know what that's about, but I mean, no, I mean, literally, like a Paramount executive's four year old son was like, "What if Monster Trucks were real?" And he's like, "You know what, son." I think you're on to something. Let's spend $200 million yeah, and bring that movie to life. Get my desk by morning. Yeah. So. And let's get the Ice Age guy to direct it. And let's make... Well, it, uh, uh, you know still what? the four-year-old, That is way. also yeah. literally how we got Casablanca. That is true. Yeah, you know, a little known fact of history, film history, but something I think that needs to be pointed out more often. What if there was a guy we were saying in, anything negative about in, in Morocco trucks. and he did not like the Nazis? And then this girl comes, and they used to date, and there's this piano. Okay, sorry. Play it again. All right. <laughs> yeah. um, it's also telling, you know, as we carry on the motif of, you know, the parental dynamics, um, we have two nighttime scenes. One of them is Don going home and still being super passive aggressive and harsh with Betty, trying to make her feel bad, trying, trying to, like, you know, he's clearly not letting what happened go. And then we go over to Pete's place and we see him just sad, you know, with the gun across his lap, looking like uh, a little boy being scolded by his mom. We don't even yep. see Allison Brie in this scene. We hear her voice um, mm -hmm. just basically tearing him apart um, because not enough like people mom, have that day. <laughs> like a yeah. mom scolding her child. You exactly. Say. 
So there you go. Poor Pete. Uh, so we see him the next morning bringing the rifle back, uh, presumably to return it. Um, uh, and yeah, Dot, Don sees that. And then uh, he has a conversation with Hollis, uh, the elevator yeah. operator, hands him a few bills and that'll get paid off in a moment. In more ways than one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I do think there's something to be said, though, about like the idea of a sullen face Pete walking into the office with a gun, you know, yeah, especially like a soldier boy. Kind of yeah. Thing. Well, also just like, I mean, just a sign of the times. So like if that happened today, like, uh, you know, that'd be <laughs> oh, terrifying. You know, well, but there's it, something. And obviously they, what they're going for. Yes. Yeah, aside from the historical thing, um, there is like the idea, too, of like the wars. Right. So like Roger right. had World War Two. Uh, Don has a little bit of like, you know, Korea. You know, he doesn't like to talk about it because he says that, you know, well, you boys you know took all the glory. Uh, but mm-hmm. then you have Peach Generation and they're just kind of like in the middle, like the, the lost generation, I think they're called, you know, like they're not baby boomers, you know, they were the ones who were too young, um, to go to war or any of the two previous wars. And they're right before Vietnam, they ended up being too old for Vietnam. So Pete is kind of like in that weird, you know, niche of like in in between wars, I guess. Mm -hmm. There you go. The war of work. Um, I also think it's telling too. We didn't really talk about how, like, for Don, it's less about like Roger. You know, for him, the war is a way to get glory, a way to get points, basically. But for Don, he sees success more in wealth and more of like being a self-made well, man. Also, they 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 almost treat war uh, like that's how you earn your masculinity. Exactly. Like, that's yeah, how yeah. You, that's how you go from being a boy to a man. It's if you so go. How does war. Pete do that? He has to be like Don. He has to become a self-made man like Don, right? I want I so for our listeners, uh, our negroupies, as I like to call them, like remember this because this is something I want to touch on uh, a little mm-hmm. bit down the line because there's a lot to dive into about Don Draper and this Don't idea. Forget. Don't forget this because there's I want to come back to this. All right, uh, we get to my favorite part of the episode. Um, I love this scene. I, I know people are going to be like, "Oh, wait, what? This is your favorite? This is my favorite." So, Pete's on his couch. And Peggy walks in and she's kind of like, hey, you know, you were going to help me, you know, write a uh, look at my copy. And, and he's just like, hey, and he's clearly some, something's on his mind. What's going on? And he turns to Peggy, he's like, you ever been hunting? And he just describes this insane power fantasy of him. You know, he kind of mentions like how he had hunted a couple times with his uncle. And we're kind of getting the elaboration of like where that short story came from. The one he I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's got a call back to that. Yeah, yeah. I just don't get why the bear is talking. <laughs> um, but no, he, he's kind of like giving an idea of like that part of him and where it comes from. And he sort of is talking. He sort of like pivots that into this power fantasy he has of this like you know guy who like kills an animal out in the wild brings it back to the cabin and then the wife serves it to him and watches him eat it and you expect in this moment to peggy for peggy to basically look at him and be like never speak to me again or just to kind of leave without a word that's what other tv shows would do right but madman has this ability to have peggy not only be extremely aroused by this conversation in a way that is like baffling at first but also to get super hungry and then that's what happens right after right and i love this scene so much because it takes a character like peggy who i think a lot of people watching this show in the first few episodes and then when the belgerly lipstick thing happens they're like this is peggy she is you know she's supposed to be like feminist we were, we're supposed to get second wave feminism from her she's a woman in the workplace she's making a go of it but then this episode is like but 
she, you know, she is a human being who gets turned on by these like patriarchal things because like that's that's who she is, and that's a very possible thing. And I love that the show has room to tell a story like that. Is there any real like metaphorical significance to like the Danish or anything like that? I wasn't really sure if that was referencing anything in particular. Just just that she's hungry. I think a cherry, like popping cherry, I think is. Yeah, I was like that and also yeah. ham. I don't know. It's uh, a little phallic, like some meat. Yeah, well, the, the, the way I imagine it is: there's a cherry Danish, and then there's a ham sandwich. One is shaped like one thing, and the other thing is shaped like another. Put sure. them together. If they had done like a, a hot dog and a donut, it wait, I'm intrigued. Keep yeah, going. Say, what yeah. happens next, John? <laughs> I'll <laughs> tell you when you're a little bit older. Um. So, okay, what happens after that? Whew, I'm getting hot and bothered just thinking about it. Anyway, so we go to the grocery store. Uh, real uh, food is in this grocery store that they built as a set. Um, so, like, I think they used actual, like, food and stuff um, and products. Well, it's... And it's a mix of things that they had on It's the where they filmed guys' grocery games as well. Okay. And then... That's not true. Helen Bishop, back in the show. I was hoping that would be self-evident. Um, Helen Bishop is back in the show. We haven't seen her in a while. Um, you know, last, I think the last time we saw her was in, um, what was it? New Amsterdam. And she had, you know, been going off to the Kennedy thing. And then Betty confronts her is like, Hey, what's going on, girl? What's, you know, trying to make some small talk, you know, clearly not knowing that Helen Bishop is aware that, uh, of what happened. So Helen confronts her and just like, well, look, I found, I found a lock of your hair in Glenn Bishop's treasure box, looking through his treasures and Betty doesn't even really try to explain, deny it or anything. She's just like, yeah, I did it. You know, and I do it again. Like, wink, wink. Uh, it's kind of funny, actually, how she handles the situation. Um, yeah. But yeah, Helen is like, what's wrong with you? Uh, he's nine years old. Basically implying that what what Betty has done has been is extremely childish and, and gross. Um, and then she slaps her. Um, with the, you know, I, I think it's, it's worth noting that, you know, even though all these characters are supposed to be adults helen is the only one that only the only character really that acts like an adult in this show i'd say you know or at least Especially one of the at few. This point. right yeah and she's like you know scolding betty like the same way she scolded her child and basically trying to wring the truth from her and then you know betty acts like a child and slaps helen so right. yeah. but also i like how they also just yeah, a tough tough uh you know couple of days for betty being confronted on coming on to other men oh sure yeah 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 <laughs> it's just one by one you know it's like every um i i also appreciate that it's not like it, it's shot in a way to be clear that like this is in public and that's what makes it even more like kind of shocking i think for helen where she looks around and it's like there are people that have been in the frame the whole time that are just like what just happened did you did you um, think of uh, the godfather though as she was walking away like uh you know the famous line of like you know just put the gun to your side and drop the gun uh, everyone would be so scared by the noise. Betty, she's but just she just drops the cart. She just walks away and just leaves the cart. That's an interesting. Yeah, I, I had not uh, made that connection, but I mean, it is kind of telling that she just she just leaves her groceries and then doesn't even, you know. I mean, what else are you gonna do? Um, and then after that, we we go to the Draper household again. And Francine stops by and, you know, she kind of makes up a reason to come over. She's like, oh, here's this shirt that belongs to Bobby. Oh, that's Ernie's. Yeah, weird. Anyway, <laughs> you slap somebody at the grocery was that, store. Was that a Sesame Street thing? Because it looked like Bert, like the striped shirt that Bert wears on Sesame Street. Was that like a joke? Uh, they make all kinds respect? of Sesame Street. 
uh, references and jabs, if you want to call it that, throughout the series. Is this legit? Or are you fucking with me again? This is legit. Have you see okay. that shirt? I, okay, I'm just making sure because there's a, a bird. There's an early, I don't think they have an Elmo. If that's what you were okay. concerned but about, that, I don't think they have an. Is Oscar. that deliberate? um sesame street thing there or is that just like a coincidence i think it, i think they might be having fun i don't know what okay. i'm not in their heads but i have to assume and i i vaguely remember sesame street it yeah i shouldn't say anything i don't want to give things away um so mike is avoiding this conversation like the plague <laughs> <laughs> not a fan of sesame street mike um looking hey big bird and then <laughs> francine is completely on betty's side um, even though it doesn't make any sense. Um, Betty doesn't really own up to like what she did at all. Um, instead, it's just more of like, well, now we hate Helen Bishop. And Betty calls Helen pathetic. And then she also sort of like, and that Kennedy, I hate him. And even Francine's kind of like, wait, really? <laughs> like, it's like, we, we weren't even talking about that. But, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, she associates Kennedy with that moment where she was with her son and all that. So it makes sense to us. But yeah, for yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. To Francine, it's, it's seemingly random. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. I do want to say something. Mm-hmm. Sesame Street didn't premiere until 1969. Okay. So you're both wrong. Well, I'm not saying I'm, that I'm it was the, out at that point. Right. I'm saying that they're having saying, fun with it in the show. I was asking if the showrunners were, you know, playing coy with that. I'm not saying that the, the characters would know. So about that's, it. I, I thought you thought there was characters on a shirt. So I was silent. I was Googling, doing my due diligence of just telling people sure. they're wrong, which is what I like to do. I apologize. No, to the, I apologize that's a good point. Yes. Yeah. I apologize. It did seem like you were you were upset about something. And I wasn't sure. I, mean, I don't like seeing Big Bird. You never I know. I mean, and you know, his face pops up. <laughs> that could be good. You know, like, you know, a listener is going to trivia night. They're listening to this episode. You know, that for all they know, they're like, hey, what year did Sesame Street start? And they're like, wait a minute. I know. 69. This. Dude. I heard about. It. Yeah. And they're just like 69. And then the host's like, nice. And you're right. And you win trivia night. Drinks for the whole bar. It's a great night, and you're welcome to everybody who won trivia night because of this thing that Mike said. The drinks are all boozy milkshakes, and Will throws up. Oh, yeah. There you go. Um, So then we cut to Don and Roger having lunch together, um, and they're slurping down raw oysters and tons of martinis. And they're kind of have like, yeah, they're talking about current events and everything like that. Uh, There's a reference to Lucy Ball and, uh, you know, it kind of triggers Roger thinking about Joan talking about, "Ah, I like redheads. You know, I can't do a Roger accent uh, impression yet, but I'll work on it, boys. They did this scene. They did this before also in the in the um, the meeting when they're talking about Nixon. They keep referring to Russia as Russians. Which, like, they're clearly the Soviet Union at that time. Was it common for people to still call them Russians, or would they say Soviets? I literally could. I, I had both. a hard time paying attention to the to the, to the scene because I kept just thinking about that. It was the Soviet Union, but I think like it's a just it's kind of I think it's similar to like the UK and England British because uh, Soviet Union included like Ukraine, it included like all the other territories outside of Mother Russia. Like that's why it was called that, right? So I think like Russia was still like a nation, but the Soviet Union was the broader term. Um, so you could call people Russians to be like ethnically accurate. If you're talking about Soviets, I think you're talking more about like the communist regime, if that makes sense. But I am not an expert. Makes sense to me, bro. Okay. Well, I we already talked about oysters to an extent. I love oysters, as we mentioned. Boom. Um, they're, they're eating a lot. And clearly like Don is trying to get Roger to like 
overdo it because he's like, well, I can keep up with you. And Roger's sort of like clearly taking the hint that, you know, Don's kind of mm-hmm. testing him a little bit. So there's this like, interesting tit for tat mm-hmm. going there. Yeah. You know, again, they're like boys. They're just trying mm-hmm. to like one up each other, exactly. and, you know, um, and the way that's framed, you know, that uh, Roger keeps like slouching down in his seat. Well, Don still sits high. So, you know, the way that the scene's framed, you know, Don kind of lords over Roger even in this moment. So I thought that was neat. You see him crack a little bit, too, when uh, he's like, you know, Don's like another one. And he's like, is that a coffee? <laughs> OK, but then we got to get the check. You know, he clearly is like starting to like really be past his limit there. And obviously, this is all part of Don's plan. They get back to the office. And what Don was talking about with Hollis, of course, was to shut down the elevator to make it seem like it wasn't working. So then Roger has to fly, uh, climb all the 23 flights of stairs. It's a brilliant sequence. I mean, we just see them crawling up these stairs, both of them sweaty. But Don, you know, he's handling it. He's fine. And Roger is just like his his clothes are soaked through. He's breathing super heavily, trying to like pass it off and trying to maintain his dignity. But of course, it all comes to a crush halt when he pretends to have lost his tie clip. Don just kind of marches ahead like it's nothing. Um, they meet with the Nixon guys in there, and then Roger finally catches up, pukes his guts out, and that's how the episode ends. It ends with Don oh, just being like, hey, you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. And then Don gently patting him on the shoulder, being like, good. And then it's, Roger never talked to Betty again. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's uh, delicious, petty revenge. So we got to talk about the puke. Uh, we already did a little bit, but I don't want you to, to dance around it. You so haven't much. had time to get into the viscosity of it, the temperature. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, for one, I mean, yeah, cro- uh, props to the prop team for making such accurately looking puke as far as like what it's supposed to look like, the texture and the makeup on Roger. Yeah. Like he generally. Yeah, looks- I was like. Yeah, I was going to point that out. I, yeah, I'm very curious to know if that was like mostly makeup or they had him like kind of run around the studio a little bit. Like, <laughs> you, you know, I'm not joking. I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, some John Slattery is a method like, actor. He, he literally just went up those 23 stairs. Yeah, after maybe having like, all those oysters. And- maybe like he got a prop man or something to kind of punch him in the stomach to look a little queasy. I don't know what they did. I'd be very curious to know what uh, John Slattery's uh, process was for this scene. Um but yeah, I mean, I think for me, though, the puke thing, it's all about timing because it's, you know, uh, nothing against like fart jokes or anything like that. You know, tw- uh, Swiss Army Man was my favorite movie of 2016. I think you can do a great fart joke, but fart jokes can be kind of easy. You know, like it's y- y- you can do that in a way with sound effects. It's not that hard. Puke is such a visual thing. Well, do you know and, you how know, they did it? Like, in, like technically? Uh, I was curious about that. No, I don't exactly so- know. They ran a tube up John Slattery's leg. I figured, yeah. Yeah, you can't see it, obviously. It's taped to the other side of his face. And then somebody pushed a button that made it go, like, burst out. And like I mentioned, it's like a mix of food, uh, mostly clam chowder. This is Tim Hunter's best direction in the episode, though, because when it comes to Mm -hmm. comedic puke, there are so many directions you can go with... You don't right. want to. Well, you don't want to do Osmosis you, Jones. You want it to you, be, with the right. framing, with with where it goes, how long it is, the viscosity of it. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm very happy mm-hmm. it wasn't like a quick like, Bleh! and I'm also glad right. it wasn't in someone's face. It, yeah, that would be a bit too exactly. Much. I think that's uh, and that gets. I, the and that's what I was trying to get into. Enough. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because like Roger's a man. I don't know. It, it's already uh, he's already losing his dignity by just throwing up in general. Even like looking as sweaty as he is in the office is you know demoralizing to him. You don't need to go the extra length of him like puking on the client or whatever. I think a weaker show would have done that to make you know the height in the comedy or whatever. But I think you already got good material from Roger throws up in the office. So it's like, you don't need the butter, the biscuit that much. You're going to get sick. If you do it that way, you know, you're going to get like Roger, you're going to get sick. Uh, so, you know, you just got to kind of play it like that. And I think, you know, uh, puke is something you have to really time and plan. Like you said, it's, it's a lot harder to do, but if you nail it, it's great. It kind of reminds me of uh, the team America throw up scene as far as just like, you know, not as long as that one, but that's another great example. You just gotta have to like trust your gut in this case. Uh, you know, maybe ironically, and just... Uh, you, have, you have several yeah. puns in you, I hope. Sure. There you go. Don't throw them up. They're coming out of me, you know. In a, you could say. <laughs> Do you guys think that that he knew? Like, did you take it, yeah, Roger, his yes. look at the end that he knew that it was Don all along? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's intentional. And, then, you know, like I said, it's another example of Don kind of lording over uh, Roger. He's, like, kind of looking over him while Roger's seen, sitting there defeated, all that. And he's like, we're good. You know, it's it's a knowing sentence, you know, it's like him kind of like he's not saying the thing, but we kind of, we didn't really even talk about the scene where Roger and Don kind of like address, but don't address the, the, the night before. It. Well, we didn't talk about it like in sequence, I guess we kind of mentioned it casually, but like, you know, it's like one of those things where like they're too polite to like be like, I saw what you said to my wife. I'm not about that or whatever. But like, he, you know, he's kind of just like he has like this weird parable, whatever. Where like he like went to the wrong apartment or something one day and you know yeah, he's we, like sometimes we literally talked step. about this. <laughs> yeah, I guess we did a little bit, but I, 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 I would know, say whatever. a lot. Maybe of it wasn't. It. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Fair making, enough. You're making it sound like we didn't mention it at all. Fair enough. I I maybe I wasn't paying attention at that moment. I apologize. So something we didn't talk about was that this is an episode of Mad Men. Sure, that is true. <laughs> that is undeniably true. Well, we we should say the name of the episode. We haven't. Um, sorry, I thought we did. Red in the face. Scare. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, scare, yeah. I was, I was there waiting for Don to lean forward and like have like a, a quick line of like, uh, like uh, don't ever park in my garage or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can keep the glass. <laughs> you know, just like pay attention where you put your keys next time. <laughs> yeah, no resolution though to the whole Don and Betty thing. Um, there's no sort of like. There's no resolution really to the Peggy Pete thing. We I don't think we ever find out what kind of becomes of that interaction, really. I, I might just be forgetting, but who knows? Maybe we'll find out in the next episode, The Hobo Code, which I know, Mike, you have been really. It's my to. favorite episode of the whole first season, and I know kind of my bit is to say every episode is my favorite episode. Like, this episode is my favorite we're episode. Suppo- we're obligated, dude. But, uh, no, like, li- Hobo Code, I've been, this one's been circled on the calendar. Mine is still Marriage of Figaro, but Will, do you have a favorite so far? Do you have enough like enthusiasm for uh, one episode or the others at this point? I mean, there's certainly ones I like. I like this one a good bit. I do. I, I feel like I'm kinder to Ladies Room than other people are. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I, I think I like that one more than most. I mean, the pilot's really good. I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen a bad episode so far. You know? Okay. Uh, I really do like Shoot, which comes up later, but we'll discuss that one in a bit. Yes, we will. Yeah, that one's two away. Oh. So mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, though. Thank you both, though, for talking in Mad Men. And thank you for everybody listening to this 
And uh, any, anything, any last closing thoughts before we press stop? Uh, should we hint at what's happening next week or leave it a surprise? Leave it a surprise because you never right. know what might happen. Yeah. You, that's a good point. Yeah. Don't uh, got to be careful. Fate. Yeah. I would just like to say go Mariners. <laughs> that definitely is relevant um, to Mad Men Men. All right. We'll, we'll see you all in the next Mad Men Men.